Hello everyone, welcome to episode 51 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today we have a listener suggestion from Alice. Today we'll be talking about a murder that occurred in Bristol in 2010. In 2010, 25-year-old Joanna Yates was living in the Clifton area of Bristol in a flat she rented with her boyfriend, Greg Reardon. Joanna was from Hampshire, but she had moved to Bristol to work as a landscape architect. Her boyfriend, Greg, had family in Sheffield, and on Friday the 17th of December 2010, Greg had decided to drive up to Sheffield after work to spend the weekend with his parents. It was nearing Christmas, and the couple had decided that they were going to spend the festive period with Joanna's parents. Therefore, he wanted to see his parents before the Christmas holidays so he could give them their presents and have a small celebration with them. On December 17, 2010, whilst Greg was driving north to Sheffield, Joanna left work with some of her colleagues and went to a local pub. The group got some drinks and chatted to each other about The Apprentice because the finale was coming up. Joanna didn't stay long, she'd had a long day at work and she just wanted to get home and chill out. She walked from the pub to her flat and stopped at a waitrose at ten past eight in the evening. She couldn't find anything she wanted for dinner though and she left without buying anything. She continued walking home and phoned her best friend at around 8.30 that evening to discuss meeting up on Christmas Eve. She then walked to her local off-licence very close to her home and picked up two bottles of cider. Next, at around 8.40, she walked into her local Tesco Express in Clifton to pick up some dinner and this was caught on CCTV. Joanna left the shop with her pizza and then she walked home. On the evening of Sunday the 19th of December, Greg returned to the flat he shared with Joanna to find her missing. He had been concerned. He hadn't heard from her since Friday evening, but he said that it wasn't completely out of character for her to go a day or two without texting or calling. He entered their flat and called out for her, but she didn't answer. He noticed that their cat appeared to have been neglected and unfed. He saw her purse, keys and coat were all there in the flat and so he assumed that maybe she had just popped out. He rang her mobile to ask where she was but was surprised to hear it ringing out inside the flat. He found Joanna's phone in the pocket of her coat that was hung up in its usual place. Greg sat and waited in case Joanna was just out and about, but at 12.45am he phoned 999 and reported his girlfriend, Joanna Yates, missing. Immediately after this, he phoned Joanna's parents to tell them what was happening. At 4.45am, the police turned up at Joanna and Greg's flat. Moments later, they banged on the door of their next-door neighbours. A man named Vincent Tabak opened the door, and when he was asked whether he'd seen his neighbour Joanna... He said no, he hadn't. The police searched all the local areas, but Joanna was nowhere to be seen. A nationwide appeal was launched immediately, heightened all the more by the fact that Christmas was just days away and it was freezing temperatures outside. Greg and some of Joanna's friends set up a website to raise awareness for missing Joanna and they put her picture all over social media. On December 21st, 2010, Joanna's parents and Greg made their first public appeal at a police press conference. On December 23rd, the police revisited the flat Joanna and Greg lived in. As a routine operation, they searched all the other flats in their apartment block. 
there were no signs of Joanna having been in any of her neighbours' flats. The police knew she'd gone home that night because she'd been seen on CCTV on Friday night wearing her coat, carrying her bag and using her purse to buy her dinner and drinks at the local shops. All these things were in her flat when Greg had returned home, so they knew that Joanna had returned home on Friday night. After arriving at her flat, however, she had seemingly vanished from her own home. On Christmas Eve, Detective Constable Karen Thomas visited the block of flats once again. The various media appeals hadn't produced any leads. People had come forward to say that they'd seen Joanna on Friday evening, but nobody had seen her after she'd gone home. The police really believed the flats were the answer. DC Thomas went to the flats and again spoke to the tenants in the various homes there. Many had gone away for the Christmas break, and so she spoke to those individuals who weren't there on the phone. The issue was, Joanna Yates and Greg Reardon had only moved into their flat in October, just two months before she disappeared. They hadn't really seen anyone and were really complete strangers to their neighbours. Even Vincent and Tanya, their direct next-door neighbours with whom they shared a wall, said they didn't know them at all. Tanya wasn't there often, and Vincent had been out in California for a business trip for the whole of November, only returning a few days before Joanna had gone missing. On the 25th of December 2010, a local Bristolian was out on a Christmas morning walk with her dog when she stumbled across the body of a young woman. The woman's body was covered in leaves and snow and was found next to a quarry wall about three miles away from Clifton, where Joanna had lived. The young woman was swiftly identified as Joanna Yates, and the Yates family, Greg, and the general public were devastated and horrified by the news. Joanna's death sent the police, the media, and the public into a complete tailspin. It was released to the media that the pizza that she had bought from the shop had never been found, nor was there any evidence of the pizza wrappers in the bins. The two bottles of cider were in her flat, though, and this again had the media raising questions. They wondered if Joanna had planned to meet someone. They asked why she had bought two bottles of cider and not just one. The other confusing factor in this case was that there were no signs of forced entry into the flat. Joanna had definitely been there, but nobody had broken in. People speculated that maybe she had invited someone over, hence the second bottle of cider, but Greg didn't think that she would have, as she hadn't mentioned that anyone was coming over, and Joanna hadn't mentioned it to her friends at the pub that night either. There was also a large amount of confusion surrounding how Joanna had died. Police initially thought that Joanna had been alive and that she had died of hypothermia because there were initially no visible signs of injury on her body. On December 28th, three days after Joanna's body had been found, the Avon and Somerset police revealed that they had launched a murder inquiry in relation to Joanna Yates' death and they said that she had died as a result of, quote, compression of the neck, in other words, strangulation, end quote. Oh, God. The post-mortem had taken longer than usual because Joanna's body had been frozen. The medical examiner also confirmed that Joanna had not eaten the pizza that she had bought and that there was no evidence to suggest that she had been sexually assaulted. Detective Chief Inspector Phil Jones, the detective leading the investigation, stated that he believed Joanna's body had been dumped by the quarry in North Somerset several days before she was found. 
He surmised that it appeared that whoever had put her there had attempted to throw her body over the wall next to which she was found, but that they hadn't managed to lift her high enough to get her body over the wall and into the quarry below. He also revealed that they were pursuing a number of lines of inquiry, most notably that they believed that Joanna had known her killer. He didn't say why the police thought this, but I suppose it was because there had been kind of no signs of forced entry into her flat. The DCI also made a statement saying that Greg Reardon, Joanna's boyfriend, was being treated as a witness and not a suspect. He had a very solid alibi in that he'd been in Sheffield with his family at the time that Joanna had disappeared. The first thing the police looked at was how Joanna had gotten from her flat to the place where her body was found, three miles away. The Clifton Suspension Bridge, a famous bridge in Bristol, was the obvious link between both locations. The bridge did have CCTV, which the police reviewed, but unfortunately the footage was incredibly grainy and therefore it was unclear whether Joanna had crossed the bridge by foot or in a vehicle. Does that not make you wonder what the point of the CCTV is? <laughs> yeah, I always, I genuinely always think about that when I see things like that. I just think... Like it's always grainy. It's, yeah, I know, you can never identify anything. <laughs> Um, And yeah, like this was no different because the footage was so bad uh, that the police couldn't even use it to distinguish different cars or vehicles or even see number plates. So they couldn't track down any potential drivers who may have seen Joanna or who may have driven her somewhere. Investigators were also aware that there was another bridge that the perpetrator could have used that had no CCTV footage on it. uh, So therefore, the bridge investigation was a dead end. The police put out another appeal for witnesses to come forward, and this time, two separate witnesses did. One woman said that she had been attending a party in Clifton the night that Joanna disappeared, and that she'd heard two loud screams at around 9pm. Another witness, who lived behind Joanna's home, said that he'd heard a woman's voice scream, Help me! But he couldn't recall when he'd heard this, although he said he was fairly certain that it had been on the night that Joanna had disappeared. The police went back to her flat and examined the entire area as a crime scene once again. This time, they removed the front door to the flat and tested it for clothing fibres and DNA evidence. Very shortly after this, the police made their first arrest in this murder investigation. On December 29th, Joanna Yates' father made a public appeal stating that he was fearful that whoever had done this to his daughter would never hand themselves in, He said that he lived in hope that the police would catch who was responsible. Then, very early in the morning on December 30th, 2010, the police arrested Christopher Jeffries, Joanna and Greg's landlord. Oh. He lived in another flat in the same building that Joanna and Greg lived in. He had access to their flat given that he was their landlord, and the police surmised that he had entered the flat with his key and had lay in wait for Joanna to come home. This arrest came just hours after police had finished interviewing another neighbour in the block of flats. That neighbour had said that he had seen Christopher Jeffries help Greg start his car the day that she vanished. They believed that maybe, because of this interaction, Jeffries had known that Greg was going away for the weekend and that Joanna would be alone. Oh yeah, of course. God, how frightening. Hmm. So Jeffries was taken to the police station for questioning whilst forensic investigators searched his flat. After 24 hours of questioning Jeffries, the investigators were granted an additional 12-hour extension to enable them to hold him in custody for further questioning. 
After this, the police applied to the magistrates for two further extensions, both of which were granted. Jeffries was detained as a suspect for 96 hours. Mr. Jeffries was a very good suspect for the police. He had the means to enter Joanna's flat. He had likely known that she was alone all weekend. And even better than that, he was completely and utterly eccentric, something I'm sure you can imagine the media heavily played on. The locals described Jeffries as a quote-unquote nutty professor. He had unruly white hair, he always wore an old shabby coat, and he had always lived alone. How old was he? So um, he was in his mid-60s at the time of his arrest, and he'd been an English teacher at Clifton College close to the block of flats, but he'd taken very early retirement in 2001. So people kind of saw him as kind of like this a bachelor kind of man who like lived by himself and who had somehow had enough money to retire early like in his very early 50s okay got you so he would have been like physically capable of carrying out the crime that's just what i wanted to check oh yeah 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 so christopher jeffries denied any connection to joanna's murder but the police didn't believe him they kept him detained for almost the full 96 hours that the law allowed Jeffries welcomed in the year 2011 from his tiny cell in police custody. Reports vary on whether Jeffries was released on the 1st or 2nd of January 2011, but on one of those days he was released on bail. He was told that every item of clothing from his home had been removed for forensic examination and that the flat itself would remain in the police's hands. He was told that he would have to live in a halfway house or find a relative or friend to stay with whilst the police retained possession of his flat. Jeffries left police custody to the realisation that almost every member of the general public viewed him as the murderer of Joanna Yates. Without wanting to admit it, the police had found themselves back at square one. They couldn't find any credible evidence to use against Jeffries, and he had adamantly denied any involvement in Joanna's murder, and they knew that they wouldn't be able to get a confession from him. Yeah, and I, because I'm guessing as well that really, even if they did find, like, evidence like additional evidence realistically a lot of it could be explained away at trial right because it was his property like he had reason to be there yeah yeah completely i think that they what they really wanted to find was something inside his flat because there's less of a way to argue away why she might have been in his flat because they did so obviously he did have the means because they lived in the same block so he obviously rented out that flat to Joanna and Greg but he also lived like I think like two floors above them in the same block of flats so if they'd found evidence of Joanna's DNA or something in his apartment I mean in his home then that would have you know that would have been very difficult I think to argue away but they didn't find anything like that yeah right okay so shortly after Jeffrey's release from police custody, on January 5th, 2011, DCI Jones made a statement saying that one of Joanna's socks had been missing when she was found and that it had not been found in her flat or at the crime scene. On that same day, the police also launched a national advertising campaign to appeal for witnesses through Facebook, an advert showing an image of Joanna with the headline, Joe's Murder, Can You Help?, popped up on the social networking site to encourage people who might have had any information to contact the police. The police put out a statement urging people to come forward, stating that they should let the police decide whether their information was significant or not. 
A Facebook page was also set up and within 24 hours of it being up, it had been shared over 24,000 times. Similarly, within 24 hours of the CCTV footage of Joanna being released, it had been viewed over 70,000 times. Shortly after this Facebook appeal, a reconstruction of the case was filmed on location in Bristol to be broadcasted in the Crime Watch episode for their episode on January 26, 2011. The filming of this reconstruction, before it was even broadcast, sparked nationwide media attention, with the police contracting in the film producers of Harry Potter to recreate the snow that had been around in December when Joanna's body had been found. Was that to try and seriously further their investigation, though? As in, to, I don't know, kind of judge like how it had fallen and stuff, or was it just, was there a point to that? Mm, I thought... Oh presumably it was to make the scene as uh lifelike as possible so that you know if someone was watching it whilst they were like having their dinner or whatever watching the crime watch episode then they were like oh that's really sparked something in in my memory so i think it was to try and uh create it to be as lifelike as possible um but in general just the fact that it was you know such a hefty production um that did spark like a lot of media attention which i guess is is a good thing i think in general like it is a good thing because it raised more awareness um and actually um it result just the reconstruction alone in the media reported on reporting on it resulted in over 300 people contacting the police with new information um and several of those witnesses stated that they thought that they'd seen a man with a large holdall or suitcase near the location where joanna's body was found oh god So on the 20th of January 2011, the police arrested their second suspect in this case. The man was 32-year-old Vincent Tabak. He and his girlfriend Tanya were Joanna and Greg's next-door neighbours. At the time of his arrest, the police revealed little to no information about Vincent Tabak or why they had arrested him due to the controversial media attention that has surrounded Christopher Jeffrey's arrest. After being detained and questioned for 96 hours, Vincent Tabak was charged on the 22nd of January 2011 with the murder of Joanna Yates. Tabak did not request bail and he was formally charged at the Bristol Magistrates Court on the 24th of January 2011. Oh my God, I didn't... Blimey. I assume you're going to tell us about the evidence. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, no, that's it. That's the end. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it's... I will, so... The thing is, it's quite important to note that this kind of next section of information didn't come out right away and it certainly wasn't revealed to the public in, I guess, the clean-cut way that I'm going to explain it to you. The information was revealed in dribs and drabs with most of the fundamental information really about the night that Joanna was murdered being revealed at the trial. So who was Vincent Tabak? He was a Dutch engineer who had been living and working in England since 2007 He was of above-average intelligence. Before moving to the UK, he had gotten a master's in architecture, building and planning, and then he'd undertaken and completed a PhD. He met his girlfriend, Tanya, through a dating website called Soulmates, and in June 2009, the couple moved in with each other into one of the flats that Joanna and Greg would soon move next door to. Vincent Tabak had been spoken to several times by the police during their routine searches. If you can remember, the police even banged on his door at 5am on the Monday morning, just four hours after Greg had called the police. 
Of course, Tabak had denied ever seeing Joanna. He hadn't ever really been a suspect because Greg and Joanna had never spoken to Tabak or his girlfriend Tanya. There wasn't really any reason to believe that he had anything to do with her disappearance and then murder. The police had spoken to him and even searched his flat a few days later. Again, I mentioned that earlier, but again it revealed nothing to suggest that he had played any part in Joanna's murder. On one of the searches of his flat before Joanna's body had been found, friends of Tabak's later revealed that he had joked to them that the police must have thought that he had Joanna's body stashed in his drawers. On the 23rd of December, before Joanna's body had been found, Vincent Tabak and his girlfriend left Bristol to go to Cambridge to spend part of the festive period with Tanya's parents there. A day later, on Christmas Eve, DC Karen Thomas went back to the flats to re-interview everyone. I mentioned this earlier on in the episode, um, but of course Vincent Tabak wasn't there. She phoned him and spoke to him on the phone about his movements on the night that Joanna had disappeared and he told her that he was in all evening before driving in the early hours of the morning to pick up his girlfriend Tanya from a party. When Joanna's body was found on Christmas Day, Vincent Tabak was almost 200 miles away in Cambridge. On the 28th of December, Vincent and Tanya drove via the Eurotunnel to the Netherlands where they then spent the new year with Tabak's family. This was not an escape for Tabak, though. The news was international at this point, and on December 30th, they all sat around and watched as Christopher Jeffries was arrested for Joanna's murder. Perhaps Vincent Tabak would have gotten away with the murder if he hadn't seen this news programme. Perhaps he wouldn't have inserted himself into the investigation and tried to frame Christopher Jeffries, but as it happened, he just couldn't help himself. He phoned up the Avon and Somerset police station and told them that he had seen Christopher Jeffries out and about in his car very late at night on December 17th, the night that Joanna disappeared. To the police, this was a huge lead. They immediately sent DC Karen Thomas to Amsterdam on December 31st to speak to Vincent Tabak. That interview lasted almost six hours. I just, at this point, just like... What a flaming pillock. Imagine how much you'd be shitting yourself at this point. There is like a 0% chance that he ever considered that the police would fly to Amsterdam to talk to him. Do you know what I mean? Like, I bet he just thought, oh, I'll just call up and I'll just say I saw Jeffrey's car and that'll be that. And then they've just sent a bloody officer to Amsterdam to speak to him. Yeah, for sure. But also like stupid to think that they would literally just take your word for it when you're saying something so crucial to an investigation. I know he's just like such an idiot, like he is. Um, So during this interview, he acted exactly how you'd probably expect him to. He was no longer calm and collected as he had been on the other occasions the police had spoken to him. He seemed agitated and asked a lot of questions about what forensic evidence was being carried out in Joanna's flat. During this six-hour interview in Amsterdam, Tabak also made another mistake. He gave a different account of what he'd been up to on the night that Joanna went missing. Originally, he'd said that he'd been in all night until he'd gone out to pick up his girlfriend from a party. But this time, he said that he'd actually gone out once to take pictures of the snow and another time to go to Asda. He then told the police, as a passing comment of sorts, that he thought that maybe he had once stepped inside Joanna's flat. He said that it wasn't when Joanna or Greg were home... Instead, he claimed it had been on one occasion when Christopher Jeffries, the landlord and the suspect at the time, had been in the flat. 
he didn't give any information on whether this might have been before the flat was rented out to Joanna and Greg or any indication on why Jeffries may have been in the flat. But because of this passing comment, DC Karen Thomas asked Vincent Tabak for DNA and fingerprint samples that she could use for elimination purposes in case they were found there at the flat. Tabak reportedly appeared concerned by this request, but he did cooperate and he did provide samples for the detective. Vincent Tabak and his girlfriend returned to England on January 2nd, 2011. By this time, Tabak thought that the net was closing in on him. He had, of course, seen that Christopher Jeffries had been released on bail, and presumably he thought they'd found some connection to him. He later told investigators that during the time between his return to Bristol and the police arresting him, he had become dependent on alcohol, sleeping tablets, and thought about taking his own life by jumping off the Clifton Suspension Bridge. On January 20th, 2011, he was arrested. The DNA sample he had provided in Amsterdam had matched DNA that had been found on Joanna's body. Swabs taken from the back of Joanna's knees matched traces of Tabak's DNA, indicating that he had carried her body with his arms, possibly around the back of her knees. Fibres on Joanna's body also matched fibres from Tabak's coat and inside his car. Lindsay Lennon, a DNA specialist, analysed the DNA samples taken from Joanna's body, and although she stated that the swabs matched Tabak's, she said that they were not sufficient quality and they couldn't be evaluated. I think this goes back to kind of what we spoke about in our episode on uh, Yara Gambarasio. Like, Joanna's body had been outside in the snow, covered in leaves for, what, I think, like roughly like seven days. And therefore, the DNA that was on her clothing and on her body wasn't really of very good quality at all. Uh, it was Murderpedia, I actually think, actually, that had a really good article on how the DNA specialists overcame this DNA issue. And that article, um, which obviously is in the description box, stated that Lennon then decided to deploy like a method. I think it's called DNA Sensi, and I'm sure I've pronounced that incorrectly. But what that method does is enhance unusable DNA samples by purifying and concentrating them to get the purest version of that DNA this isn't always done because it eliminates the possibility to be able to determine where that DNA has come from, like uh, from semen or saliva or touch or whatever. Uh, but in this case, it was worth doing because the DNA was unusable as it was. So really, they had nothing to lose. Right. This purification process basically gave the DNA specialists the confirmation that they wanted that there was less than a one in one billion chance that the DNA didn't match Tabax. So it was definitely his. Tabak claimed that this DNA evidence had either been planted or that it had been fabricated by corrupt officers. On February 8th, 2011, Vincent Tabak told a prison chaplain that he had, in fact, killed Joanna Yates what? and that he intended to plead guilty. Blimey, that's a bit of a U-turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he kind of U-turned again because... He somewhat honoured this statement in that on May 5th, 2011, he pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of Joanna Yates, uh, but he denied murdering her. This guilty plea was rejected by the Crown Prosecution Service, and almost five months later, at the end of September 2011, Tabak appeared at a pre-trial hearing at Bristol Crown Court. His trial started two weeks later, on October 4th, 2011, the jury heard from the prosecution how Joanna had been killed within 15 minutes of arriving back to her flat with her pizza and ciders. Jesus. 
she had taken off her coat, put her bag down, opened one of the bottles of cider and taken a sip of it. She had presumably put her pizza down ready to cook, but the pizza nor its wrapping was ever found. Perhaps Vincent Tabak took it back to his flat to eat. The court heard that Tabak knocked on Joanna's door and when she opened it, he forced himself into her home. Joanna had sustained 43 injuries to her head, neck, torso and her arms. How were they not originally visible then, if it was so numerous? Well, I suppose it doesn't really matter, does it? No, it's a good question. It's an interesting question. I think, and not to be graphic about it, but I think it was because when her body was found, uh, she had been completely frozen. And I think, um, presumably, you know, her skin was blue. Like, it wasn't... uh, Presumably, like, the bruises and stuff weren't visible because of the colour of her skin because she was, like, so frozen. And so, actually, you know, at first I said they thought that she died of hypothermia because she was completely frozen um obviously after they defrosted her body and i know that's a horrible thing to say but i think after that then they started to notice the bruising and the cuts and things like that so it's not like she had stab wounds or anything like that it was just kind of like the bruising which i guess initially wasn't visible yeah that makes sense the prosecution stated that tabak had used his large stature to overpower joanna he'd pinned her to the floor or a wall and when she had screamed as heard by witnesses he had placed his large hand over her mouth and nose to silence her. The big question really was why had he done this? The prosecution offered up the suggestion that there was a sexual motivation to this crime. Tabak had previously paid for sex workers and had entertained many sexual affairs outside of his relationship. He had also frequently watched violent porn, including videos of girls being tied up and videos of a man throttling a blonde girl. It's thought that the jury were not told all of this information during the trial, however, because the judge had ruled that it could damage the prospects of a fair trial, but I'm not kind of sure what part of this they weren't told. Maybe they weren't told about the pornographic videos. That seems really relevant to me. Like, I can't understand why you'd withhold that information when, like, as we've just heard, it serves to provide context and motive. Presumably because you could argue it the other way and that there was no, like she wasn't um, sexually assaulted or anything like that. So presumably it could just be used as a way to kind of, um, uh, what's the word? Kind of like defamation against his character, I guess you could say like, why does it matter if he watches these pornographic videos? Um, She wasn't sexually assaulted. I, I guess it could be argued that way. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, and I do see that. I just think like, it, yeah, you don't, for it to be a sexual crime, there doesn't have to be a sexual assault, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. it, the gratification for him could be the violence, and you'd think that, like, his own choices of pornography speak to that. But yeah, like, I do agree that mm-hmm. obviously, if it's deemed not relevant, etc. But yeah, it just seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think what the jury did hear, however, um, was that uh, forensic testing on Tabak's computer had showed that he'd been watching porn just hours before Joanna had returned home. And the prosecution suggested that as a result of being sexually frustrated, he'd been seeking out, quote unquote, sexual contact from Joanna. The jury also heard that in the days following Joanna's murder, Tabak had Googled maximum sentence for manslaughter. What happens with forensics? and body decomposition time. What is wrong with people? If you're able to Google all of that, how are you not able to 
I don't know, comprehend that, like, your search history might be looked at when you're considering, like, to premeditate something that much and not consider that actually the your premeditating might be used against you. Like, it happens so often, doesn't it? And it just, it's insane. Yeah, it's so stupid. I mean, thank God it does, because it helps, like send bad people away but you do just think like really yeah like have you never seen a tv program ever um on that he'd also been googling joanna yates and joe yates at kind of the same time he was googling what's the difference between manslaughter and murder so oh that is so scary that you could like just live next door to someone and this is what they're up to like you know obsessed with you and Mm -hmm. so up until his moment on the stand Vincent Tabak hadn't offered up any explanation for what happened to Joanna that night. He spent two days in the witness box and he said that Joanna had invited him for a drink and that she had made, quote, flirty comments to him. He said that killing her had not been sexually motivated and that it had happened by accident when he had tried to, when he had tried to stop her screaming. He said that he had leant in to kiss her and that she had screamed and to silence her, he had held his hands over her mouth and over her neck He said that he was in a state of shock when her body went limp. He said he had only used minimal force around her neck and he had only held her by the neck for about 20 seconds. He said that after Joanna had died, he had taken her body to his flat, placed her inside a bicycle bag and then he'd bundled her body into the boot of his car. He then drove to Asda to buy beers and crisps. During this time, he made sure he was seen on CCTV footage there And he also texted his girlfriend to say that he was, quote, bored in an attempt to presumably give himself some sort of alibi. What gets me about this, though, is that when he was initially asked by the police, like, where were you that night? He was like, oh, I stayed inside the whole time. So I don't really know. Maybe he was trying to provide an alibi for himself or maybe he was just stupid. Yeah, like maybe he was literally just that remorseless that... That's what he was just wanted to go and do anyway, yeah. because he wouldn't be the the first person to like go and do something like that, would he? Go shopping, having committed like a horrific crime. Yeah, 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 completely. Yeah, I think it is just like remorselessness, absolutely. Um, anyway, yeah. So after he'd been to Asda, he drove Joanna's body to the location where he left her body, and he covered her in a pile of leaves before he returned to Bristol to pick his girlfriend up from a party. She had never had any involvement in the crime and she had had no idea that Tabak had murdered their next-door neighbour. That is just awful, isn't it? Terrifying, really terrifying. So, on the stand, he admitted that after he had killed Joanna and the police were searching for her, he had googled the difference between murder and manslaughter and the definition of sexual assault. However, he repeatedly said that he couldn't remember how or why Joanna has sustained so many injuries. He said that he didn't inflict much force on her at all and that her death had been an accident. According to an article in The Guardian, detectives later said that they privately believed that Tabak could recall what had happened to Joanna, but that he was taking a gamble on the fact that nobody would be able to prove that. In their minds, Tabak thought that there was no use denying what had happened, but that they would be hard-pressed to be able to prove his level of intent. The jury of six women and six men retired to deliberate and within two days they had a verdict. On October 28, 2011, 33-year-old Vincent Tabak was found guilty of murder by a 10-2 majority verdict. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 20 years. Mr Justice Field, when passing the sentence, stated that this was, quote, 
a dreadful, evil act committed against a vulnerable, unsuspecting young woman in her own home. He also stated that there was no mitigating factors in this case, but that there were aggravating ones, namely the fact that Joanna had died in pain, beset with fear, struggling desperately with her life. When the guilty verdict was read out, Vincent Tabak sat down in his chair and put his head in his hands. As he was led out of the courtroom, Greg reared and turned and stared intently at his girlfriend's killer as he was walked out. A statement from Joanna's parents read out after the hearing said, quote, The last four weeks have been more stressful and intense than we ever imagined. For us, it is with regret that capital punishment is not a possible option for his sentence. The best we can hope for for him is that he spends the rest of his life incarcerated where his life is a living hell, being the recipient of all evils, deprivations and degradations that this situation can provide. Our main sorrow is that Jo was not allowed to start her own family, have children and achieve her potential. We will never get over our loss, how she was murdered and the total lack of respect in which her body was treated. DCI Phil Jones praised Joanna's parents and boyfriend for the dignity they had shown during the investigation and the trial. The police and the media, however, faced heavy criticism in the way that the investigation had been run, with some questioning why it took so long to pin down Vincent Tabak. Investigators rebutted this and said that they had located the DNA evidence that linked Tabak in early January, but that it had, quote, taken time to process it all. Christopher Jeffries was officially released from bail on March 4th, 2011, three months after his initial arrest. During those three months, Jeffries had not been able to return to his flat at all and had to live with various friends. He said that during that time, the press were desperate to locate him and he could not leave any of the homes in which he was staying for fear of more headlines about him. This was all despite the fact that Tabak was charged on January 22nd, Jeffrey said that the fact that the police took so long to clear him of suspicion had a huge negative impact on his psychological well-being. He said he felt as if the police were playing a game with him whereby they continuously promised him that the ordeal would be over soon, but that they'd find any reason to prolong the wait. When he eventually returned to his flat after it had been given back to him, he said that it was in a state as if it had been burgled. Everything was out of place and he had to go through the motions of putting every aspect of his life back together. The police faced scrutiny for the information they had released to the media during Jeffrey's initial arrest and it was found that they had breached what they were legally allowed to release to the media pending a formal charge. Christopher Jeffrey subsequently won an undisclosed sum in libel damages against various newspapers who posted horrific headlines and stories about him, namely the Sun's headline of the Strange Mr. Jeffries, The Daily Mirrors, Joe Suspect is Peeping Tom, and The Daily Stars, Angry Weirdo Had Foul Temper. Well, that's also sad, isn't it? And I think it's so, like, difficult, you know, things like how the media and, like, the police and everything, like, treated him. Like, if he'd have been found guilty, then, like, you wouldn't question it. But I think, actually, it is that whole thing of... That there is a reason that people are innocent until proven guilty and actually the kind of treatment that he received obviously wasn't in line with that and and would have caused him like great pain so yeah that does make oh, quite sad for him like particularly to sort of yeah go through that on his own um 
yeah, and for Joanna, I, you just can't imagine. I just find it really haunting that she lived like next door to her killer and just had no idea, like probably spoke to him in the mornings and in the evenings and yeah, like you do with kind of neighbours and never really thought a lot of it. And then like little did she know that all that time that was going on. And his girlfriend as well, actually, for her to have gone out that night. Can you imagine to then find out, like, months later that in that time, like, your partner, your loved one had done the most unspeakable thing possible, like, and you'd have gone home that evening and literally been none the wiser? I think that's what's so terrifying about it. And I think, yeah, Vincent Tabak, I think he's so... I mean, obviously, like, disrespectful. It's like a total understatement. But I think to go on the stand and be like, oh, well, she, like, invited me into the flat. Like, I think it's just rubbish. Like, I don't believe that for one second. Yeah, to victim blame, even right down to the very last minute. It's like, you've taken everything from this family and you couldn't help yourself but to get up on that stand and say, oh, she flirted with me. And But as if, like, what, you know, it's not relevant. This isn't your time to, like, justify and you know, set a story, it's your time to admit what you've done. Completely. And I don't think for one second that that was what went down at all. But I mean, even if it did, like, why does it matter? That just because you, what, so so if you're saying that she flirted with you and what, that gave you the right to take her life? Like, I don't think so. You can't say that, you know, that is like a justification for why you were in her flat and why you used an excessive amount of force on her. And then to just be like, oh, well, I can't really remember what happened. Like, why couldn't you? You know, you're not saying that you were drunk or on drugs or having a psychotic break or anything. You're just saying you can't remember. I just think it's just so, yeah, disrespectful to her family to just even bother putting forward a defence like that. Yeah, I totally agree. So Greg Reardon set up a charity page in Joanna's name to raise money for the charity Missing People. This charity has helped reunite many broken families with loved ones who have run away or who have been abducted. They provide specialist support to those families whose loved ones are missing. In a statement about Joanna, Greg said, quote, Joe loved it by Bristol's harbourside and found great joy in local rowing clubs and evenings out overlooking the water. The memory of Joe will always be with me as I look across the harbour and remember our unforgettable and special times together. Jo was a beautiful woman, beautiful in mind, body and soul. She had a great career ahead of her as a landscape architect and would have achieved a great many more things in her life if only she was given the chance. I will always love her. My never-ending thanks goes out to those who showed so much love for Jo in the events following her disappearance and after dropping everything from all corners of the country, took to the streets of Bristol to campaign for her to be found safe and well. Sadly, this wasn't the outcome we had all hoped for, but we all, Joe's dear friends and family, now celebrate the life of one of the most lovely and genuine people to grace this earth. Oh, how desperately sad. So, thank you all so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate you all very much for coming back each week to listen. Um, If you don't already, please follow us on Instagram at infraction.thepod and you can also find us on Facebook. If you want extra content and to hear from us while supporting the show, then you can do so at patreon.com slash infractionthepod. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts to all of those who do support us over there. It really does mean the world to us. Uh, Bye for now, and we'll see you soon for a brand new episode. Bye. Bye.